for this evening, I'd like to speak. Can you hear? I see. I had pressed the uh, button for this one, <laughs> and I had, oops, and I had on another one. So too much merging of self and other. <laughs> I guess we've started already. <laughs> So this evening I'd like to speak some in a way which can help us to uh, integrate some of what we've explored in the last two days of working with Joanna, of um, going into this quite amazing process with ourselves, with uh, members of the group, with our world. And I'd like to speak for a shorter time than typically we have for Dharma talks. Uh, maybe about half an hour. There's been a lot of uh, activity, a lot of things happening, in some ways a lot of words. So I want to talk a little more briefly and maybe in a way more simply. And then uh, maybe after I've spoken, sit for 10 minutes or so, 10 or 15 minutes, and then move into uh, silent practice, which would then go on until 2.30 in the afternoon tomorrow. So it's really entering into a silent uh, time. And I'd like to talk more generally about the process of transformation, or at least uh, one way of understanding the process of transformation following the framework that we've received from Joanna, which is a simple one in some sense. This understanding of, uh, as it were, four phases of the transformative process. For, for Joanna, it was in a way grounding in uh, gratitude. And I'll speak more generally about really grounding in what we could call our resources, our truths. And secondly, this uh, honoring of suffering. Thirdly, the seeing in a new way. And fourth, the, what she called the going forth into the world, what we call the um, integration, the integrative aspect, connecting it with our uh, everyday lives. I think it's quite a common model. You know, I was thinking of some other uh, models like it. I was thinking uh, particularly in, in Zen. Some of you know the famous uh, model in which it said that before I began practicing Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. I don't know if that's gratitude, but maybe it is. And then after I was practicing Zen for some time, I saw that mountains are not really mountains and rivers are not really rivers. I won't unpack that, <laughs> what that means, but uh, it's that sense of seeing the uh, emptiness or the uh, relativity of conventional terms and understandings. And then 
when I became fully mature in my practice, mountains were once again mountains and rivers once again, ri again rivers. That integrative moment of coming back to ordinary life, but in a new way, because the second time of seeing mountains and rivers is different than the first. Or also, some of you know, the, the ox herding pictures in Zen where one at first begins to glimpse the bull, which is the symbol of awakening, and sees the traces of the bull, and finally sees the bull from a distance, and then comes face to face with the bull, and then all forms dissolve. And then one comes back to oneself and form, and um, the last of the pictures is riding the bull into town with bliss-bestowing hands. It's that integration into the everyday world, but again, in a different way. So I think this, this is a, a similar model. And it's, I think it's helpful to work with this model, not just in what we did with Joanna, but in general, because it can sometimes help us uh, locate uh, where we are in a given um, period of our life or a given day. And it can help in very, very simple ways so that if we are primarily integrating, connecting what we've learned on an everyday basis, it has aspects of very ordinary consciousness, really making this work with one's family or friends or partner or work situation. And we don't necessarily need to look for the intensity which was right at the middle of the transformative process. Some of us are intensity junkies. Probably a few of us here. And, and, and so it's helpful to know, well, in integration, it sometimes looks different and vice versa. Sometimes when we're honoring our suffering or in the middle of the transformative process, we kind of long for the ease and ordinariness of everyday life. And, and it's not like that. It has, can have qualities of being very intense and hard and so forth. And so it's helpful just to have that kind of very uh, simple map. So I want to talk more generally about the, this first phase, which for Joanna had to do with gratitude, of really talking about it as a phase of um, connecting with our resources. In a sense, it's the what we what helps us with the journey. And again, uh, I'll be presenting this in a more linear way, but it's not really a linear model. In a sense, all of these are happening at once and some of them are more to the fore. But in some sense, we, um, in traditional practice, we might really begin our practice. We, be, we don't just begin and go into honoring our suffering. Typically, uh, if we do it in a conscious way, if it's not just happening to us, we, we go in with some tools and we go in with some perspectives. In traditional practice, we would often really connect with the um, three areas of training. Traditionally, that would be a training in wisdom, which might be particularly an understanding of the four truths, an understanding of the reality of suffering, the roots of suffering, the possibility of peace and freedom, 
and some sense of the practical way to get there, that we'd have some orientation as, the, as we uh, enter more deeply into the difficult places, we have the, that guidance. And we also increasingly have the guidance of the secondary of training, which is more is, uh, in the Buddhist tradition is that of meditation, meditative training, the tools in, of mindfulness, of loving kindness, and other traditions of visualization, of uh, working in different ways to um, have resources when things get, get uh, difficult. And in a sense, this uh, first phase is that uh, building of resources. And the third, the third uh, area that we might call a resource is the area of ethics. And so the traditional training of, is conceptualized in terms of training in wisdom, meditation, and ethics. Ethics being the ethical guidelines, but also the way that we act in the world. And so we, we, we focus on that here, especially as our container. We couldn't have done the truth mandala without having a certain container of trust and some actually some very concrete guidelines like confidentiality and so forth. And so in a way we go forth um, into this work on the basis of these very um, specific resources. Although we could also mention the resources of community. We have certain training and in a way in a sense, we start there with certain intentions, certain perspectives, certain tools. But in a way, we continually come back to the resources also. That we use those resources, we call upon them at certain moments. When there's difficulty, you know, we remember, oh yes, mindfulness. <laughs> you know, we get caught in something. We remember, oh yes, it's possible to be mindful. And as Joanna was saying, continually, um, to have the tools of mindfulness or the heart practices or many of the practices you work with. Some of you work with Tonglen or practices of, uh, you know, in Tibetan tradition of working with, um, you know, feeding the demons is a practice I know some of you work with from the Tibetan tradition. These uh, are practices we call upon at difficult moments. We we invite them to be present. And very, very important to remember that that's both in a sense where we start and we continue to strengthen the resources. We, we continue to stabilize them, to uh, strengthen them, to train further. And then the, the second phase we know is the phase of honoring our suffering. And there's this very important aspect of our transformative practice, whether our individual meditation practice our, or our engaged practice in the world, is that we, we find ourselves often, as it were, going into the fire, going into the, the painful territories. My own personal history of doing retreats is that about, it seems like at least um, certainly the first um, this is my personal story, so don't interpret this too much, but my, my first uh, 20 years or so were about 50% stabilizing wonderful strengths, resources, and about 50% going into pain. And 
it was interesting to see how they, they in a way balanced each other. We really need, we need the ability both to strengthen, to gather resources, to build, and to be able to go into what's painful. I've talked some, I think, in the first retreat of the work that I've been doing with people for about three and a half years on the theme of working with judgments, especially self-judgments, kind of unexpectedly becoming an area that I've given a lot of attention to from doing a day long and having it be a very significant part of my own personal practice and then giving a day long and thought thinking it was over and then people gathering around and saying, we want more. And I had one or two meetings and I said, okay, well, that's, that's it, right? They said, no, we want, we want to continue. It's three and a half years that we've had more or less monthly meetings. And it's interesting. I mean, I think it's one of the deep one, one of the deep areas of wound in our culture. Don't find it in the same way when I've uh, been in, in Asian cultures, for example. And I don't, I don't say that to mean one's good and one's bad. I think there are different kinds of wounds and there are different reasons for it. And, but, but anyway, I was finding in, in working with people that to go into the area of judgments is to go into the area of wounds to go into the area of pain. And I found in working with people that in a way, sometimes it's actually appropriate to go into the painful territory. And it really is important to really get a sense of what the voices are and to become familiar and to touch the pain some. And sometimes when there's not uh, a certain level of balance, it actually doesn't seem so skillful to go into the painful territory. And I was thinking also that I know that many of you, for example, uh, work with, with uh, people who've experienced trauma. And I, I've um, actually just last month, I had uh, four days of further training on trauma, which is part of a, a training I've been getting. And it, it, you know, those of you who worked with it, this is commonplace, but you know that it's uh, in the case of trauma, it's actually not so helpful often to ask someone just to be mindful of the trauma or of the painful territory because it basically re-traumatizes. And so there, there are, uh, in, in those cases, the uh, intention would be, we might say, to strengthen the resources, to really build those. And then in certain ways, learn how to work with the uh, trauma in a variety of ways only some of which might involve something like mindfulness or going or doing anything like what we did yesterday. And it's, um, and so that's important to know. I found in working with people that some t it's, it's very, in the long run, it's important, really, uh, it's really important to be able to have the capacity to be with the painful territory, but there's almost like uh, an art of knowing when to work with the suffering and the pain and when to work with, um, when to strengthen what, what I would call the resources or to strengthen or to go to metta or to go to something basically that balances us. When we're not in balance, asking someone to be mindful may not work, may not be very skillful. So we have to come back to balance. 
in the long run, I think we need both. And so it's, it's kind of an art form. I think it's very applicable to our work in the world that um, sometimes we mostly just need a balance. We need to come back to balance in various ways. We need, you know, rather than stay and say, I will be mindful of the suffering. Sometimes we just need a vacation, you know? This is a serious Dharma point. Uh, um, it's really crucial because it's uh, just to remember that there are skillful ways to honor our suffering and there are unskillful ways. And, we, and to know the difference is part of what we learn, I think, in this process. But especially we learn that it is important to be willing to face our pain and our suffering. And we remember the Buddhist teaching in a way which can be part of the guidance we get that in a sense, um, like I talked in the first retreat about that teaching of the two arrows. Do you remember that? Where, where in a way, the first arrow is the arrow of pain and we're all shot with the first arrow. And our practice is not to shoot the second arrow, which is to, uh, because let's say of the pain of the first arrow, to react and shoot an arrow either at ourselves or another person or both because of the pain. And so that helps us to give some, I think it's a helpful distinction between pain as a given and the suffering, and it's in a way we're defining the terms, the suffering as the uh, reactions, the resistance to the unpleasant, the uh, inability to be with something. And the words used in all sorts of ways. So I think it's helpful to be, to be uh, precise like that. And in that sense, as you know, it's sometimes said, pain is a given, suffering is optional. And the Buddha didn't teach about getting rid of pain. He talked about transforming suffering in, that, in the sense of that distinction. And yet we have to be able to uh, learn how to go into that pain and in a sense, we learn, I think we've learned from Joanna, that there's something profoundly healing about that. There's a beautiful uh, poem that I want to read from Rumi, that some of you know, which is about this, this interesting way that to one of the great secrets of transformation is that actually to go into the pain that we don't want to face um, in the long run leads to less pain. In the short run, no, <laughs> but in the long run, yes, it's a very important principle for social transformation, which I'll get to in a moment. This is Rumi, one dervish to another. What was your vision of God's presence? I haven't seen anything, but for the sake of conversation, I'll tell you a story. Spiritual humility there. <laughs> God's presence is there in front of me a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. 
The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings so you could burn them away, one set a night. The moth sees light and goes into fire. You should see fire and go towards light. Fire is what of God is world consuming, water world protecting. Somehow each give the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now, what looks like water burns, what looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. One molecule moat second thinking of God's reversal of comfort and pain is better than attending any ritual. That splinter of intelligence is substance, the fire and water themselves, accidental, done with mirrors. Thank you. Thank you, Ruby. And so there's this way in which um, our society doesn't know this, this uh, truth. And in a sense, when we don't face pain, it drives us. In a way, it controls us. I think we can see that socially, that when we don't face social pain, it drives the society. When we don't face the legacies of slavery or racism, as we mostly don't in this society, they drive us. When we don't face the near uh, genocide of Native Americans, uh, it drives us. When we don't face, for example, what um, the damage our country has done. One of the people I've studied with uh, He's a great teacher of uh, conflict transformation, Johann Galton. He's, he estimated that uh, American foreign policy has killed uh, 15 million people in the last uh, 40 years, 50 years. It's, that's unimaginable, isn't it? I mean, it's numbers like that. Each one of them was a person like us, you know, with uh, dreams and hopes and a right to live. And yet, people who are wanting to look at the deeper implications of, let's say, Vietnam, are told that they have Vietnam syndrome. You know, or the country has the Vietnam syndrome when it gets cautious about using power. So it, that's what Joanna was talking about, that sense of making, going into pain as a disease, pathologizing it, quite literally, in, in that very terminology that you can see in the newspapers. You know, I think we, in a way, need the American equivalent of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah. And as we open up to that uh, pain, as Joanna was guiding us, we learn to see in a new way that somewhat uh, mysteriously, the willingness to open to what's difficult and painful, in a sense, is transformative in itself. We don't immediately feel that, but that it's, 
if we stay with it, I think we know from yesterday that, that we can actually sometimes feel that quite quickly. But it's that mysterious way that, uh, that she, she, we were talking about how just to face fear takes courage or the way that opening to those qualities of the truth mandala, the sadness opens up to love, the emptiness op- opens up to a sense of openness and possibility. The anger opens up to a sense of uh, what she called passion for justice. And, I, and it can open up actually to all sorts of things <laughs> as well. I mean, in my own experience, anger often opens up to a sense of hurt and sadness, which can then open up to love as well. So it's quite uh, this uh, alchemy of, the, of these emotions. Um, and we also, as we come to see in a new way, we come to see also what we might call the limiting beliefs that are connected with the pain. Very important, it's the wisdom dimension coming in. We see, and they can be, um, they can be general limiting beliefs about the nature of things, about our own identities. They can be beliefs about I, that I'm separate from others or that happiness comes from accumulating pleasant experiences and avoiding unpleasant experiences or from shopping, you know, or from uh, controlling things and so forth. Or we look at more personal kinds of limiting beliefs that we find as we go into the painful territory, we find that yes, there can be uh, limiting beliefs like that of, if I'm really myself, I won't be loved. Or I'm basically flawed. There's something basically wrong with me. And as we go in, we, we disclose these. We see them and in a sense we see their, um, their limits and in a way we reverse them. That we come to see uh, in a different way. We come to see um, interdependence, very much emphasized by our, our teacher of the radical interdependence of all phenomena. So we come and we've explored that in different ways here. We come to see how that's uh, manifest as we go into our pain. We see that it's not so easy to say, I am the pure self-righteous one and they are the bad ones. That we see a certain kind of complicity. We notice that. That's an insight into interdependence. We notice how, in a way, we have um, very similar conditioning. That we're not these separate beings who have each have our own um, um, personalized or very personal um, and completely unique and idiosyncratic um, confusion. Let me say that again. <laughs> Let me say that in a different way. That was that was somewhat personally and idiosyncratically expressed. <laughs> so, um, 
Let's see. What I'm trying to say is that we learn that we're messed up in the same ways that everyone else is. <laughs> just to be, just to be direct about it and simple, um, and that's really important because we see the interdependence and and we, in a sense, come to see that in some ways there is um, there is the mind rather than simply my mind and your mind and your mind and so forth. In a sense, both are true, but we see that, they're, that we're connected. In a sense, I, mean, I think we learn that from each other. We learn that when one person is courageous and opens and transforms, it's uh, contagious. You know, scientists of the brain say that this is limbic resonance, that there is actually a field here. It's a field of energy and connection. And I, I imagine that we felt that. I felt that, um, especially the last few days. And we can tap into that and, and um, know that. And that tells us something about the mythology in the negative sense of um, sense of separation. Where we can see in a new way that Joanna was suggesting about the uh, uh, vastness of time, the vastness of space, can really see uh, and hold things differently, can have that sense of time being this um, um, this vastness that we're part of, that we are um, able to connect with the ancestors, the beings of the future, and place our lives not within, oh, it's difficult today, but have this big expanse that gives, as, as one person mentioned, uh, more ease with uncertainty. It gives a kind of equanimity to have this big sense of time because we know that we're part of this very vast flow and we make our home more within the vast flow than with just this very narrow band. And it helps us in our social action. I was thinking of uh, Dr. Uh, Arya Ratni from Sri Lanka, who was here at Spirit Rock about two or three weeks ago, who is the um, founder of Sorvodaya, which is probably the most developed socially engaged Buddhist organization in history. 15,000 chapters in Sri Lanka, major role in ending the civil war, responding to the tsunami. For Sri Lanka, his peace plan is a 500-year plan. 500 years. Basically said, the problems took 500 years to get there. We need to have that long view. And he's probably actually condensing the time for the sake of people getting it. He said, well, it's actually more like 4,000 or 5,000 or, you know. But it's, it's this long vision that changes our way of seeing things. We, we learn that, we learn to be able to hold paradox in a way, to see in a different way, to understand in a different way that we can have both uh, wounding and the possibility of healing together. Someone was saying, I think it was, I forget whether it was yesterday or today, I think my sense of time is more like a, a river 
or I don't know, I don't remember where everything happened, but I know that it happened. And we, uh, someone was saying how, I think, I think it was Sally, if I remember right, um, was saying that uh, there was something that got released that I have to heal everything. Was that, was that right? Was it you? Yeah, that I, that I can actually uh, be, know my wound and go further and brought up from Joanna that sense of the wounded healer. It's a very important uh, archetype. And so we can see that. We can see how those, those balance, see how those go together. Um, to see how, uh, to see how we can have uh, what the Tibetan teacher, great yogi Milarepa called a relaxed sense of urgency. It's a paradox. Well, how do you hold opposites together? That's something to do with the Buddha's middle way. How do you hold them together? Or Gary Snyder said, knowing that nothing need be done is where we begin to move from. Or it's the way that in, um, this is uh, Cornell West, the African-American writer and activist and social theorist. He talks about uh, African-American blues musicians as bringing together qualities that we don't usually think of being brought together. He says, they express righteous indignation with a smile and deep inner pain without bitterness or revenge. The ability to have that quality of um, um, creativity and joy coexisting with oppression doesn't fit our usual model. And so the last phase is the integrative work. The uh, really the making of the other phases real in our daily lives. This is hard and it's often mundane. And we like sometimes to be at the beautiful peaks of insight, the beautiful outpourings of emotion or expression. But the reality is that the integrative process is different. You know, here we may have a lot of support. We may have this great vision. Then we go home. And we may or may not have the level of support. Probably most of us not. Certainly the focus wouldn't be like it is here. And there we have to find ways to make the insights real in our everyday lives. That's the work of integration. It's not easy. We can't stay, as it were, on the mountaintop. We have to make this real. We have to stabilize the insights in our very being. We need a lot of support to do that. And I'll just mention a few things about that process that in a way, it's the ongoing ability to keep identifying the old patterns when they emerge, the ones that we've seen when we've honored our suffering. We can know what that pain is. We can know some of the limiting beliefs with it. And we use the tool of mindfulness to keep on recognizing those voices when they surface. You know, I've just, uh, whatever, I've just had something difficult happen at work and I'm feeling the voice of inadequacy come up. It's mindfulness which says, that's that voice again. 
and I know it doesn't mean it goes away. We don't use that as a hammer to make it go away, but we name it. And then as much as we can, we name it, we'll be mindful, and we, as it were, invoke our resources. We invoke our resources at that moment, what we started with. How do I have, I invoke my wisdom, I invoke my mindfulness, I invoke my kindness, and we use different tools at different times. But the integrative work is this continual process. It's not like we, I think everyone knows this, but I know I at first thought I would have some kind of deep, penetrating, illuminating insight which would penetrate every cell of my body and um, I would live happily ever after. <laughs> and that lasted about uh, five seconds. Has anyone else had that, that notion? <laughs> and it's, it's uh, this is the real work, is the work of stabilizing those insights, really. Stabilizing and expanding them until they become our everyday consciousness. That's the work of integration. And mindfulness is crucial to see the old voices, personal, social, to keep naming them, to keep coming back, to keep invoking the resources, keeping on doing it continually. And as we do that also, in a way, finding the forms which support that integration. That's where what Joanna was talking about, that sense of moving to be uh, creative, to develop new forms, to find different ways to be with our mainstream institutions, different ways to work as many of us are doing with medicine or education or healing or spiritual communities for social justice movements, for social change organizations, for ways of doing social service. We find different ways that, as it were, integrate and fuse and bring up creativity. And I think I'll close just by reminding us that this integrative process um, can take a while. I won't end right there, but, uh, but it, it takes a while. It, it's, I think, as Joanna said, we're, in a sense, uh, in this for the long haul. I mean, you signed up for a two-year program. That's a pretty long program, relatively. So you're at least in it for two years. But we're, in a sense, we're in this for the long haul, you know, and we have that uh, sense of what uh, Joanna was calling this continued faith, really, to stay with things, to be with things. Uh, I think I'll just end with two, um, two examples of that. One is um, I've been really inspired uh, by spending a lot of time at the Highlander School in Tennessee. Some of you know that. I used to live in Kentucky. Uh, before I came to California, I lived in Kentucky in rural Ohio for seven years. And I've since go actually go back there Kentucky, Tennessee, the mountains in North Carolina to teach about once a year. And Highlander School is now near Knoxville and it's, it's a very powerful place. Some of you know its history. It was um, founded in 1932 and became in the 1930s, was particularly connected with the labor movement. In the 1940s and 50s, particularly connected with the civil rights movement. It was one of the few places in the South where blacks and whites could be together. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, trained there. 
Rosa Parks trained there. Rosa Parks didn't just one day get on the bus. It's a myth, you know, it's a mythology. She didn't just one day feel tired and refuse to give up her seat. She was actually trained at the Highlander School. She was part of a social movement. And she, at Highlander was the main place where that happened. And very, very powerful. The, the um, main director of the Highlander School is a man named Miles Horton, who was like, actually like, uh, he was a trickster. And he needed that trickster energy, kind of like the, the uh, I was thinking of like Wiley Coyote, who has these many lives. Um, and it's a kind of an energy that just keeps on getting reborn, even though it's, you know, Horace, some of you know the Pacific Coast image of the raven. Some of you know that, that, that the raven keeps on basically getting pulverized, but doesn't die, just keeps on happening. And Miles Horton, I think, was like that. There was, in 1960, the um, state of Tennessee shut down the school. It was right at the height of the integration or civil rights movement then. They shut down the school and two months later it was burned to the ground. And Miles Horton, just really, really clever without, he, it started like within three months. It started again and it's still going and doing amazing work. He just, it, it got burned to the ground. He just started and kept on going. And there are a lot of stories like that. It's, it's, there's some beautiful histories of that school. And in a way, I'll, it's like this uh, short poem that I'll read to close from um, Pablo Neruda. It's really about that sense of patience, the long haul, and the everyday uh, work of integration. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. If each day falls inside each night, there exists the well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Thank you. And thank you, Joanna, for this model. I think I'll just invite us to sit for about, um, maybe about six or seven minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.